Hi everybody, my guest today is Adam Wakeman. Adam is a keyboard player whose credits include Annie Lennox, Travis, Ozzy Osbourne, Black Sabbath, and many, many more. He also plays guitar. Um, I first met Adam in 2012 when I got him on board to be in the house band for the Marshall 50th anniversary concert at Wembley. And here's what he had to say. Hi, Adam. Hello, mate. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. And you good self? Uh, I'm fine, thanks. Um, I was just saying in the intro to this that although this is the Lefty Guitar Channel, you are primarily a keyboard pay player, but of course you play uh, guitar very well. And also, it might sound slightly tenuous, but you've spent a lot of time working with one of the, the greatest lefty guitarists this country has ever seen in Tony Iommi, which we'll get onto in a bit. I often ask people, were their family musical? Of course, I don't really need to ask you that because it's kind of <laughs> well and truly in your genes, but... I want to know more about when you first started, was it your choice? And when you started, how, what was your approach to it and, and go from there? Well, it's a weird one because the, I mean, obviously you're aware, my, my dad's a, a musician, Rick Wakeman, and that was, my parents split up when I was about three years old. So I lived with my mum in a very kind of normal upbringing with um, my mum, Ros, and my stepfather, uh, John. And then, um, but then there, there was these kind of odd weekends where I'd go and visit my dad and he'd be playing at Wembley Arena or whatever. So it'd just be this crazy kind of, you know, weekend staying up all, you know, till three in the morning as a, as a youngster and, and then getting dropped back very late on a Sunday and then getting dragged out of bed for school on a Monday morning and it was all back to normal again. So it's quite, it was sort of a weird, slightly schizophrenic um, upbringing, but, um, but it was when I saw my dad at, um, I think it was one of the incarnations of, of Yes, Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, Howe, one of those. And I was about 10 years old or eight years old. And I remember seeing the show at Wembley Arena and thinking, that's it, that's what I want to do. And that was kind of, that was the start of the sort of decision that I, I wanted to be in music. And, and up, up until that point, I, it was a Greenpeace protester I wanted to be. Um, but I'm not really that keen on boats. So, you know, the Rainbow Warrior was... <laughs> is now a distant dream <laughs> so when you started was it um how how did you learn self-taught did you have lessons did you speak no, to had, dad what was his input no, i had lessons i had lessons um piano lessons that um to work to go through the grades you know the the um the eight grades which um i quite enjoyed a lot i know a lot of musicians don't um you know they maybe do grade three grade four and then just hate it and just want to do you know rock music or, or pop music or whatever um but I actually really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the sort of dedication of the scales and the kind of the technique that you learn from, from playing classical. Um, so I really enjoyed it and I went through the eight grades. My dad was a funny one because I would, whenever I'd sort of go and visit him at weekends and stuff like that, um, I'd say, yeah, I remember one particular time I said, um, can you show me that intro to Catherine of Aragon or one of the, the six wives of Henry VIII, um, uh, album and uh, and he just he was in his office and his office was it's the same as it is now right? it's just piled up with shit everywhere like just piles of manuscript and proper sort of mad professor stuff and I just remember saying can you show me that thing and he just handed me a cassette and just said if you want to learn how to play it just go and learn how learn how to play it and I sort of walked out of his office thinking what I just want him to sit down and show me how to play it but what, what that did was was kind of really, you know, I played that, that cassette 
you know, until it was worn out because I just I wanted to learn how it how that intro went. So I ended up kind of um, at an early kind of age developing my ear quite quite um, quickly. Um, so I've kind of got him to thank for that. Although at the time it was um, it was it was quite annoying. He must have known though that you were obviously very dedicated to have gone to like those lengths to. You know what I mean? To to be asked. No, no, no. It's nice of you to say so. He just didn't want to be disturbed. He was doing something else. <laughs> oh We've all been, we're parents. We know exactly what it's like at that point. And I constantly remind myself, I have to, that when my kids are asking me things and I'm in the middle of something, I have to stop and think this is the point that they're going to remember whether I helped them or not do something. Yeah. And so, the tables have turned at that point. Exactly. And it's so important to try and kind of give that time. However, you know, I, I'm sure I'm sure I've done a few a few kind of bad parenting things where I've been, you know, been asked to do something and, and I've just gone nodded. I'm looking at the computer going, yeah, 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 whatever, you know. Yeah. And I'm sure that will come back to haunt me. A bit like reading books. I don't know when your kids were young, when you read the read the book, I, I when they were kind of about two years old. I, used, I was so tired by the time the kids were kind of in bed and, and I'd get the book out and I'd start at page one and then I'd skip three or four pages. The book made no sense at all because I just missed out half of it. And you could see the confusion on their faces going, Spot had a dog and a ball, but now he's on a plane. What happened in the middle? You know, I just wanted to get <laughs> yeah, to the end. Yeah. <laughs> Bad parenting tip number four. Oh, just, I know. I remember those days as well, trying to skip the pages to try and make sense as well. You're sort of thumbing through the pages as you read and think, how can I, can I get to that page with it making sense or not? Yeah, it's funny the things you're doing. But it's funny to see, you know, like I say, when the table's turn and you, and you become the parent, but you remember being the child asking for you, asking you, you know, trying to get your parents' attention for these things. Um, so you were very much inspired by the classical stuff. Was there, was there, or was it like anything, what, any other genres and stuff like that when you were that age? Uh, inspirations and heroes is what I'm kind of getting at. Okay, so to begin with, I was very focused on what my dad was kind of doing, um, you know, because they were the only albums that I had. So that was kind of what I was listening. Then once I got a bit older, I, was, I got more into the kind of blues jazz stuff. Um, Dr. John, my yes. ultimate kind of hero um, uh, piano player. And uh, yeah, a little bit of jazz, not, not a huge amount of jazz. I preferred that kind of blues jazz to the kind of you know out there felonious monk stuff which i kind of i'm, I'm into now um and uh yeah and then you know zeppelin and all that stuff i moved to devon down to biddyford in north devon where i did my um gcse's that kind of age um and um it was weird going from from up country down to um i say up country kind of you know the kind of berkshire kind of way down to devon um it was like going back in time a little bit. It was kind of, everyone was still listening to Led Zeppelin and Bob Dylan and, you know, all my mates, all their parents were old hippies. And, and that was the kind of music that kind of been, um, you know, still around. So I was kind of re-educated into the kind of old school rock, White Snake, all those kind of bands. Um, and then when I moved from there to the Isle of Man, it was like going back 50 years. I so, it's yeah. all, you know, going back in sort of generations. But, and the Isle of Man obviously was, was, well, I did my A-levels over there and that was the fantastic kind of period for, for live music for me because I just joined a couple of bands who were all a lot older than me um, and I was playing four nights a week. It was fantastic. It was a kind of, you know, it was a, a fantastic apprenticeship kind of 
time of while studying A-levels and doing grade eight piano, I could go out and play in all these in all these bands and, and you know, play whatever music was kind of needed that night. It was fantastic, really, thinking how many places and opportunities there were to play live. Yeah, of course. But did it feel slightly alienating being uh, sort of moving away from where you feel everything happens, ending up on the Isle of Man? And then what was the bridge to try and sort of get back, trying to make a go of it professionally and getting the gigs and that sort of thing? Well, that from that point, when I when I left school, eighteen, um, we had um, a, 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 an offer to do a couple of tracks on an album of my dad's, and we called it Wakeman with Wakeman. Basically, the the idea was, you know, I'd write a couple of tracks, and then we were going to do a couple of shows, and those shows ended up being a kind of two month UK theatre tour. And then we did another album, and we sort of wrote half of it each, and then we did another tour. And at that point, I was like, well, I don't really want to go to university. My plan was to go and study music at university. And I thought, all I'm going to do is come out of university and do this. So for me, it didn't really make sense to then go to university. Sure. I just thought, well, I'm already doing what I want to do. So that's kind of what happened. I, um, you know, worked with my dad for at that period, sort of eight years or so, seven or eight years, where we were con constantly touring and and producing albums um, and then I kind of ended up I was really choosy about doing other gigs mainly because I wasn't comfortable uh, or secure enough in myself to, to think that I could do a good job doing it it was a real a really kind of looking back on it a lot of missed opportunities because I just felt un I didn't feel in my comfort zone for whatever reason but and as all musicians, you know, will know, it's like you don't find your comfort zones until you do a load of shit that you, you know, you find out what you're really good at and what, what kind of you don't feel comfortable in. So mm. I kind of, I didn't do a lot of stuff outside of my own projects and working with my dad until I was kind of, you know, mid twenties. Um, and then I kind of sort of more, more out of necessity really is I kind of, um, you know, I had a I had a mortgage to pay and I didn't have any money. <laughs> so I had to kind of do something. Of course. But was it at that point as well you felt uh, you were stepping out um, and being your own person a bit more and coming out of the shadow of your dad? And, and was that more of a thing that you wanted to be taken? Uh, and you knew you had it in you at that point, I, I'm sure, that you could just be your own independent musician and then sort of go off and do things, having sort of worked those early gigs with your dad so much. Yeah, the, interesting that 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 was always an issue for me to start with, because the amount of people that would come to my dad's shows, you know, and there was a novelty of seeing me there. But, you know, let's face it, they were coming to see my dad and I just happened to be there sure. as part of the show. Um, and I was fully aware of that. But it was it kind of niggled me after a little while is that everybody it was almost like this kind of um, why well, you're only doing this because, you know, it's your dad's kind of thing. And. And that and my dad was aware of that as well. And he would always try and feature me and give me a lot to do um, in the show so that, you know, it was people could see that I, I could play and I wasn't just there um, as cheap labor. Um, yeah, it was it was kind of there was a purpose to it. Um, but then, yeah, as I started doing more stuff outside of it, it was kind of, you know, I felt a bit more kind of like I was sort of forging my own sort of path of it and it was a lot of pop yeah. stuff really to start with it was kind of you know atomic kitten um 
crikey, some other, a lot of, there were a lot of these kind of TV shows where, you know, they're just not really around so much now, but there were kind of like this one called T4. There was um, the early morning um, uh, TV shows always had a band on at some point, you know, an artist on. So I did loads and loads of those for years. And um, yeah, and then the work with my dad kind of lessened as I took on more other stuff and then went and did um, things like Annie Lennox and Travis yes. and those bands. And, and it was kind of that then took over more time, you know. Of course. And at that point, you know, I'm sure no one was uh, even, you know, uh, second guessing what your surname was, you know, because you've proved your worth at that point. And yeah, I know it's... that I know you've I mean, if we were to talk about everyone you've played with, we'd be here for a very long time. So. <laughs> those early days when you first started going out and the diversity amongst it is something you always try and explain to us. It doesn't matter who you're playing with or what the genre is. A gig is a gig, essentially. Like you say, Atomic Kitten, Annie Lennox, you know, they're quite different although in the pop genre. Um, what were some of your highlights and like favorite moments from the people that you work with around that time? Oh, I mean, Travis was, was my, was my first kind of, uh, I mean, they're a, they're a big band in what well, it was 2000 when I kind of, yeah they were they were them. huge and they were a big they had a, a couple of years off after neil the drummer had um broken his neck in an accident so they had a kind of period off and then when they came back that was when they needed a um uh, a keyboard player for the road and uh and i just i got on with them really well great bunch of guys and i love the music i knew a lot of the songs in fact incident is quite a funny story where i was actually away with Annie Lennox and on in a European tour and we were playing in Paris and I got a phone call about going to an audition with um with Travis and previously about a year before I got an audition for Jamiroquai and I went along to the audition to Jamiroquai and I was kind of told it was oh it's just come along it's just a bit of a jam it's fine you know and I got there and realized very quickly never turn up to an audition thinking it's a bit of a jam, <laughs> especially with a band of the caliber of Jamiroquai. Of course, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Absolutely awesome band. And uh, and it uh, it went absolutely terribly. It was an awful audition. And I walked out of there going, I'm never going to be underprepared for an audition ever again. Anyway, sure. cut to a year later, I'm on tour with Annie Lennox and get this call to go and um, meet Fran and have this audition. So I... I learned the back catalogue at the time. It was maybe four albums, maybe one, three, four. Yeah, four albums. And uh, and I, l- I learned all the songs and I was able to play them all on a piano because I knew I was going to Fran's house to, and he had a piano. So I made sure I knew all the all the tunes that I could play on a piano and, and, and show that I actually knew all the songs. And um, so I flew back. I didn't tell anyone on the tour where I was going because it was a day off. Um, just because I just didn't really want them to to know I was sort of leaving and not I was jumping ship from the tour, but just sure. flew back to England, went to um, went to his house, had a cup of tea, sat in a teepee in his garden because his um, his wife was pregnant and um, that was her kind of birthing chamber. They had this tea, teepee in the which wow. It was about two stories high. This thing it was massive. He lived in, <laughs> at the time. He lived in Crouch End. I was expecting thinking, a big baby or something. <laughs> yeah, massive baby. I just couldn't believe it. I was thinking his neighbours must hate him. Yeah, can you know, you imagine, got, yeah. His whole garden's full up with his two-story TV. <laughs> anyway, um, and uh, and he played me the new album and then he said, do you like it? I said, it sounds great. Yeah, it sounds like a step sort of on from the last albums and, and yeah, it's really interesting. And uh, he said, so do you want to 
do you want to do it then? And I was like, all right. And he went, great. Okay, well, we'll be in touch. I didn't play a note. I didn't play one note. <laughs> so I was, the, I was like over-prepared yeah. and then didn't, um, didn't need to play a note. So it was quite a mad experience. Unbelievable. Um, so the highlight, uh, sorry, highlight, that was the question. A highlight of with Travis was probably um, Live 8. So we did Live 8 yes. in London. Right. And, uh, and for me, apart from the fact it was one of the last gigs I did with them, and I hadn't worked with them for about a year before, because um, I was away on, on the Sabbath tour. I actually flew back in to do that from Sweden, from Stockholm in Sweden, right. on a day off to do that show, and then flew back out to Sweden the following morning. Um, but uh, it was memorable because I remember at the start of the show, I had a, a, a new keyboard tech I'd not met before. Um, he didn't really know how the gear went together. I couldn't remember how the gear went together because it was always Travis's gear and I hadn't seen it for a year. Right. And, and it was a bit, there was no rehearsal. There was no sound check. It was kind of on go. And I went, walked on and literally played the first chord and the keyboard stand just went chink oh so, the key- no so i had the keyboard on my lap for a bit it was just and i just remember looking up at one point and just thinking of all the places for this to happen in front <laughs> of a like, worldwide televised audience oh god yeah just the you know however many billions of people watching it around the world but it was that was kind of that was quite a a kind of um a rewarding time because it just felt like it was the most and probably still is the most important sort of gig I've ever been a part of. You know, it was yeah. a fantastic, you know, fantastic day. Um, but I've got to say that surely playing with Annie Lennox at a similar time was also as... Um, yeah, great. I mean, they were, I, I was jumping at one point between between Annie Lennox, Atomic Kitten and Travis. Right. And there was this little, there was a weekend where I did a Friday with Atomic Kitten, a Saturday with Travis and then a Sunday with, with Annie Lennox. At that point, I couldn't, I couldn't retain anything else in my mind other than these three sets. Sure. Just because it was a, and I was quite young at the time and I was kind of, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. But Annie was fantastic. She was a, she was a very, um, uh, the most honest person I'd met at that point where she was at the kind of interview that I had before I, I got the job. She was very open and, you know, and we talked about, family and relationships and, and all sorts of things. I just instantly got on really well with her. I thought she's a, a really honest sort of lady. And that's, you know, most, you know, w- within an industry like ours, which is um, kind of peppered with uh, crooks and villains, you know, that, uh, th- that have come up from the sort of, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, where everyone's got a story of being ripped off and yeah. all the rest of it. The flip side of that is that the majority of musicians and artists that we work with are absolutely wonderful people and are genuinely lovely people. So yeah. there's not been many people that I haven't enjoyed working with, but I, I, I definitely mark her as the sort of up there in the top, top three. Yeah, yeah, I bet. She always comes across as being so great, you know, and she is legendary now, you know, she's... Yeah. Yeah, man. So, um, so moving on then, of course, there's many other people, but we we really should talk about the whole Aussie thing and and the Sabbath thing. Um, what came first? Was it Aussie's band or was it the Sabbath thing, or was it about the same time? And how did it happen? Right, weird, weird 
why I got this gig. So Annie Lennox is the connector here because I, okay. was, playing, I was playing in America with Annie. <clears throat> we played in Los Angeles at a theatre, I forget the name of. Um, and I remember looking out in the audience and seeing uh, in the kind of front couple of rows, it was just celebrities. Right. And it was, it was typical kind of L.A., you know, oh, Rod Stewart, Rod Stewart's Amazonianly tall wife, whoever it is. And then, you know, you kind of recognising all these people. And I recognised Sharon Osborne. She was there with her daughter, um, Amy. And I said during the interval, I said to our tour manager, a guy called Tony Wiggins, um, I said, oh, I saw um, Sharon Osborne in the audience. I'd love to, love to meet her. And he said, well, I used to work for her father. So after the show, Sharon came back to see him and he introduced me and we chatted for about half an hour, mainly about the Osbournes TV show, because that's what was going on at the time. Right. The Osbournes TV show was a massive hit yeah. on MTV. And the episode had just come out where um, the neighbours were pissing them off. So uh, they threw a giant ham, ham. Over I remember the that, yeah. through there. Yeah, it's like the weirdest. <laughs> and so I was having a conversation with her about that, you know, and she's like, yeah, well, it's sort of just happens you know it's kind of just a completely <laughs> normal thing um so uh so that was the kind of um that was it that was i just got on really well with her and went away from that thinking well that was really nice to meet her and i had uh, we spoke very briefly about my dad sessioned on um sabbath bloody sabbath on that album right back in the day because he was it was a morgan studios my dad was in studio b or studio a and they were um recording with yes and uh, Sabbath were recording Sabbath Bloody Sabbath in one of the other studios. And my dad met Ozzy in the bar. They got hammered and Ozzy said, oh, why don't you come and play on this tune or a couple of tunes? So that's kind of what, what happened. So, so we briefly spoke about that as well. Anyway, cut to eight months later, I was bored checking my, um, checking my emails. And at the time I had a, a Hotmail email address, which was linked to my um website so yeah. anybody emailed the website it went to this hotmail account um and uh for whatever reason i decided to check the junk mail i don't know why because you know as you know it sort of deletes after 30 days sure. and you forget about it so you know i was bored i was looking down there's all these you know all the all the kind of normal uh, viagra pills and yeah yeah, yeah. All the all that stuff. Um, uh, the cream makes your, your penis enlarge and all that stuff, sure. which incidentally doesn't work. No, um, doesn't, does otherwise, your hands would be massive, wouldn't yeah. they? You'd have <laughs> massive hands everywhere. You'd be able to tell everybody that's tried them. Anyway, so um, so there was one from uh, it said Divine Recordings or something something divine, and at the time, um, Hugh Grant, the actor, had been in a compromised position with a a, um, uh, a, sort a lady of, of the night yes called divine called divine Brand. that's right yeah yeah so the filters at the time of that there is a purpose for this story by the way it's, oh, no, I'm, I, loving I, it. I'm loving it i'm loving it i'll get i'll we'll get to the point no, it's fine. so the um the filter on hotmail anything that had divine it flagged it up as porn and was therefore chucked into the junk folder of course okay and because this came from divine records or divine recordings whatever their at the time their record company was called it just put it straight into the trash right and it said the message just said um hi my name is so and so can you please give me a call here at sharon osborne's office and i thought oh it's 
it's got to be a joke. It's got to be a kind of, you know. So I left it a day or so, and then I thought, you know, I should phone it just just in case. So sure. I phoned the number, and sure enough, it was um, it was her uh, assistant at the office who um, who said, um, yeah, I'm sure I would like to offer you the job to come and play with Ozzy. And and just I was like, like that. and he said, um, he said you were. Uh, you certainly were playing it quite cool. You said that that was sent nearly a month ago, <laughs> that email. <laughs> so another two days and it would have got deleted and I never would have got the job oh because they wouldn't have chased me, you know, after a month. So anyway, so th- as it happens, I turned it down because I was in the middle of a tour with Travis. Um, and so I turned it down. They said, well, you know, thanks anyway. Um, see you later. And then Ozzy had his accident on a quad bike. So he was off for 18 months. Um, Then when he came back and they rescheduled the tour, they called me again and I'd just finished my run with Travis. So, um, so I was available. So then I went and did it. And then I went out to America to do, um, to do the tour two weeks before I got the, um, uh, the set list. Cause I kept hassling them saying, you know, do you know the set list? What's going on? Um, two weeks before the first um, festival, which was an Ozfest, they said it's not Aussie anymore. It's Black Sabbath with Bill Ward back in the band. So it's the four, um, the four of them. Uh, so it would be it would be a Black Sabbath thing. Tony would get in touch with the set list and all that stuff. So that was it. So I was already thinking it was going to be Aussie, and then a couple of weeks before rehearsal started, they um, it was it was Sabbath. So my first outing was actually with Sabbath. That's the craziest story. And do you know what? Some things are just totally meant to be, aren't they? You know what I mean? There were so many yeah. opportunities there that you could have missed the gig, but, you know, you found the email, you called them up, you turned it down. Yeah. And, then, and then, you know, fate has a strange way of working. And then he, he, Ozzy couldn't do anything because of quad bike accident. Wow. And then bizarrely, you were all set to go in Ozzy's band uh, with Zach and whoever, yeah, but it turns out to be a Sabbath reunion, which must yeah. have been like last knockings, late in the day oh, kind of thing. So what no, what did they say to you then? We still want you to do it, but you're going to be, you know, on keys. And did is this when you started doubling up on the guitar? So, so this is to begin with. It was just keys. So I went out there. Ozzy didn't come to rehearsals for a couple of weeks. So I had a couple of weeks and met Tony and started with Tony, um, Geezer, and Bill, and. Uh, and I was, I was pretty much playing, you know, everything on a sort of distorted Fender Rhodes kind of sound. It was kind of, I was yeah. doubling the guitar parts as best as I could on, on keys to, um, so that there was something there when Tony was soloing. That was the kind of, that was the kind of thing. Cause there aren't really that many keyboards. There's a bit of strings on Snowblind, yeah. um, a few samples of in Warpigs and, and, and start Black Sabbath. Um, a few other sort of little bits and pieces, but predominantly it was just kind of keeping a rhythm thing going, um, either on a distorted Hammond or a distorted Rhodes, kind of depending on what the tune was. Um, and there was, and then there was one one song um, at the end. Tony said, "Do you play guitar?" And I said, "Yeah, you know, a little bit." Um, and he and he said, "Do you want? Can you just play rhythm guitar on Paranoid just on on that one tune?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure." So I used, obviously he was left, left-handed. left I didn't have any guitars with me or I didn't, you know, didn't have any guitars on the road because it was a keyboard playing gig. Sure. So um, I used uh, Mike Clements' guitar. Mike Clements was the, um, 
was Tony's guitar tech. Yeah. And uh, Mike had a, a guitar that was made the same spec as Tony's, but, but right-handed, right yeah, so that yeah. Mike could go and check all the gear and check the amps sure. and everything. Um, because, uh, as you well know, you pick up a guitar that's left-handed and you're right-handed, it's, you might as well be, you know, <laughs> taking your arms off and playing it with your feet. It was kind of, so I used that guitar for it for for that tour, just playing that one song. And then, as it developed over the years, we did more and more tours. Um, when Sabbath took a break and Ozzy went out on the road and I was doing that, uh, when Gus G came into the band, yep. um, which was 2010, 2011, that kind of time, 2010, um, we sat down and had a chat uh, about stuff. And I said, oh, it'd be great to, you know, a couple of the tunes, like when we play Sabbath songs with Ozzy, it'd be kind of better if I played rhythm guitar rather to make it more authentic. And, and, and Gus is all about kind of authenticity and making things sound the best they kind of, you know, they can for, um, you know, cause he was, you know, he was filling a kind of multitude of chairs in that band at the time where we were doing quite a, 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 um, a, a long set. We, we were sort of touching three hours at some point. For, so we were doing Jakey Lee stuff, we were yeah. doing Randy stuff, yeah. Zach stuff. Yeah. And Gus was brilliant at kind of replicating all of these guitarists. And as that's, well that's as got to be one of the hardest gigs to try and do because of his caliber of the guitarist he's always yeah. had throughout the years. So hats off yeah. to him, you know. I think he was amazing. He was, he was a, um, I mean, still is a very good friend. And he was such a, such a humble kid. Yeah, I say kid, you know, he was, he was a little bit younger than me and he was just so... Um, it was so so nice to see the kind of enthusiasm and professionalism from a kind of young player. And it was all about making sure it was right. Anyway, long story, even longer. I ended up, um, you know, then playing the guitar parts, uh, rhythm guitar parts on the Sabbath tunes that we played. Cut to then Tony coming to a gig in Los Angeles, an Aussie show. They were having a meeting about some future Sabbath stuff. So this must have been about 2016, no, 13, 16, something like that, 15 or 16. Um, and uh, no, 2013, so that was a 13 album, Sabbath's 13 album, which okay. was 2013, I think. Um, and, and Tony saw me playing the guitar and he just said, are you comfortable playing more guitar? I said, I'll, you know, I'll do whatever you want, whatever you want me to play or nothing, whatever, make the tea, I'm kind of easy, sure. really, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever you want. So, um, so then I started playing more tunes on guitar. And then when I went back to playing them on keys or certain songs on keys in rehearsals, Tony would say, Oh, do you want to do this, do this on guitar as well. And then by the end of 2017, when we finished the tour, 2018, the last Sabbath shows, I think I was playing two songs on keyboards and the rest was rhythm guitar. Right. So it transitioned was, that much. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, just because that was kind of how it ended up being what sounded more authentic. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's quite a weird thing because I'm with Sabbath, I'm off stage in a, you know, yeah. in a kind of tent at the side. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and it's just the, it's the weirdest kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I'm it must of, be uh, a bit like doing a theater pit gig, you know, in, but uh, well, a bit like that apart from the fact that you're playing with the biggest metal band that's ever lived <laughs> in stadiums. 
rather than yeah. a pit in a theatre. It must just be so bizarre being behind yeah. the curtain playing. Yeah, the funny, the funny hearing, thing hearing yourself come out, you know, out out front or whatever, knowing that you're out there, but you just sat there. I mean, it must be great though, because you must have a nice little setup, have some drinks going, it, some snacks. You no, know, it was great. I used to get um, there was one <laughs> on the last tour we had. Um, I was kind of, I was sort of below, I was at the side of the stage. So my head height was about here where the stage was. So I was right up, you know, and, and Giza used to, I was on Giza's side of the stage. So he used to sort of come over and sort of try and kick me through the hole in the, in the front <laughs> of the tent, you know. It's, we had a, yeah, we had a really good laugh. Everything was just brilliant. Um, and it was just that bit that was weird to start with anyway, because... Yeah. Um, it was just like everything's the same, you know. You fly to the gigs, and you have your everyone's, you know, on the hotel. And it's all really cool, kind of cool. And then you get to the, you know, you got dressing rooms, and it's all lovely. And then you walk to the gig, you walk to the stage, and you're like, oh yeah, I'm in, I'm over here. I'm I'm in here. I'm not up there. In your jogging <laughs> pants and your, you know, old well, t-shirt. You know, I only did that once. I I said I was going to go. I was going to be in a dressing gown and just have like. But Ozzy said, if you if you do that, I'll pull you up on stage. So I thought, <laughs> yeah. there's no way I'm going to no. be doing that. But, no. but what I did do is there, at the at the side of the uh, so on the side of the stage, there's a kind of a blacked out sort of tent around me, and the front of it is open. Um, but the lights, the stage lights that were on the floor, were so bright. I said to um, to Terry, who's my um, keyboard tech, I, I was like, mate any way we can just like put something along this front so I can still see everybody, but just a bit that high. So, it, you know, covers everybody. So he put this bit of line across and this bit of curtain, um, but it wouldn't stretch all the way across. It was like this bit of curtain would go to about here. So wherever the lights came on, I'd move the curtain over to here or whatever. And in the end I said, it just looks like a washing line now. It looks like I've got this. So each, each gig I'd add a piece of gaffer tape clothing that I'd make and I'd attach it to this what looked like a washing line in front of my tent and then wherever I was in my tent I could move around and I could make different members of the band wear these items of clothing <laughs> so at one point I'd have you know I'd have geezer in a sort of dress you know or Aussie with a kind of these flares on and oh my the, god it was just the stuff that kept me kept me entertained oh that's so good that is well yeah you've got to do it man a couple of things on the on the whole aussie and sabbath thing before we move on uh just quickly aussie's album scream was it scream you co-wrote yes. a lot of the songs on that yeah now that's again another mad twist of fate and this i mean this is a kind of it's so important for I can't stress this enough to musicians that are listening that want to, you know, you know, young, young musicians that kind of think, oh, there's no point or yeah, that will never happen. Because I was I was in New York on, on one of the Aussie shows and I met Kevin Sherko, who's the producer, who yeah. produced Black Rain and Scream. Now, the way it's it's always been with with Aussie's albums is he he has a change of musicians on his albums. He has changes of producers. You know, he's he's the sort of artist that really benefits from changing things. You know, he really kind of, of feel, you know, and it's a, and I think that's one of the reasons he's remained so valid, you know, over the yep. years because he hasn't just stuck with the same format. Definitely. Anyway. So, so there was never an expectation, even though I was in the live band that I'd be used on a recording. It just, you know, that was, if it, if it ever happened, great. If it didn't, it didn't. Sure. So black rain, I wasn't involved with, um, Zach played all the keys on on that album, and um, 
during this, I met Kevin Sherco and he sent me a message and said, I'm in New York. Do you want to come and meet for a beer? And I, we just played the night before and I got absolutely rat assed and I was incredibly hungover. And I didn't reply and I thought, you know what, I could just really do with a day in bed and just not. So anyway, I stayed in bed a while and then I thought, do you know what, I should really get myself out of bed and go and meet this, meet this guy and, and sort of, you know, have a, have a drink with him. So I did, I got myself out of bed, went, went out of the hotel, went and met him and his, his wife um, in this Irish bar. And uh, I think I nursed a pint of Guinness for about four hours. I, don't, I was so hungover, I couldn't even finish it. And uh, I just got on really well with him. And I remember going back to the hotel thinking, I'll never be in a, I'll never put myself in a position where I'm too hungover that I can't go and meet people that, you know, that have asked, asked for me to show them. Yeah, it was just- it was Respectable really, people, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it gets really easy after a while, especially a long time. And Aussie tours were going on four months at a time before I get home. And it sure. was, you know, it was kind of, you know, a little bit of time to yourself was quite kind of um, precious. Anyway, yeah. cut to six months later, Kevin is then producing the new Aussie album, Scream. And um, he'd, uh, they just, I think they'd just been going a long time and they recorded a lot of tracks. And he suggested to Sharon that he'd bring me in and we work on some stuff together. So that's kind of how that all came about. And I can't help thinking if I'd have blown him out to go for that drink, I would never have got to know him and never sort of, you know, kept in touch. And um, so I was very, um, very lucky really to have that opportunity. And he was a brilliant producer to work for. Uh, because he was so he he wasn't um it wasn't time intensive he was just like look if we spend all day and come up with one riff or or nothing it doesn't matter you know so take those pressures off you yeah of course and you become really creative and it was yeah. great you know it was i spent probably three weeks there at the house recording and and yeah it was a it was a great time brilliant brilliant um and uh yeah the the last thing on on this whole set you know part of your life is the 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 last gig with sabbath in um in birmingham that must have been something yeah do you know the the weird thing is that cropped up on instagram or something the other day i, I just didn't even think about it that it was february the 4th like however many years back i can't right. remember what is it 23 years ago four uh three I don't know, like three years um, it seems like longer for some right. reason. I don't know why, but um, what was weird about that is that there was this this build up through the end of the tour, knowing that that was going to be the last show. Yeah, and uh, and th- and there was kind of there was almost this sort of weird kind of you know there was no big party planned. There was no you know there was nothing nothing really planned like that, and it was weird. And I I was thinking to myself why is that are they not having and then i thought well it's probably because they've known each other for 50 years yeah and you know the only benefit of a party is for everybody else and everybody else that's there is already having a massive party so it was kind of quite it was weird it just sort of finished and we had a couple of drinks uh, you know i drink with tony and and um some of his family up at um at the bar and i think ozzy went back and the other thing of course they were still recording in a studio I'd found them a studio in uh, called Angelic, which is near uh, near me here, um, over near Banbury, mm-hmm. um, uh, between Brackley and Banbury. 
and uh, they were recording some extra stuff for the DVD, the end right. DVD, which was going going, which came out, you know, about six months later. So for them, it's like, well, they they're all going to see each other again in a few days' time. So yeah. it wasn't, it didn't seem like so so final that that was the end. Um, but as far as the show went, obviously it was pretty, you know, it was pretty emotional by the very end of it. It was quite mad. Yeah, I can imagine. I just wonder also if it was one of those if you ever felt uh, that it was. Yeah, because it shouldn't really, on the face of it, it shouldn't have been any different from any other Sabbath gig on that tour. And was there an added pressure, you know, knowing that it was the very last one and did that sort of get in the way or any of that sort of thing, you know? I think probably for them there was there was a, you know, any hometown gig is going to be, um, is going to present certain pressures, you know, any kind of for a British band that come from London or come from Brighton, a gig in the hometown, they kind of, they want it to be more special because it's their hometown. They want to, you know, that's just yeah, how, how it worked. Um, for, for me, it, it was more about, I didn't want to make any mistakes because I thought that's going to be, if I fuck it up, then I'm always going to think, oh, fuck yeah, I fucked that last, yeah. <laughs> that last show yeah. up. But, um, but, you know, I think you kind of, you have to put, like you said, it's just the same as every other gig, but there was just a little bit of an added sort of special yeah. because it was the last one. So. Yeah, great, man. I want to I wanna finish this chat by just talking about when I first met you, which was uh, the Marshall 50th anniversary gig at Wembley that we did in, would have been September 2012, which is already a long time. Can you believe that was that long years. ago? I, do you know, I remember looking at, looking at you when you were kind of juggling all these guitar players in your musical director's role, thinking, there's a gig I don't want. <laughs> I, like, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> oh, man, you were like, you were kind of like Kofi Annan in the sort of UN sort of peacekeeping, that you were you were so, uh, you were so kind of calm with each of these guitar players. And I tried was, to be. It was no, just I, it so was. Do you know what the whole lead up to that? I mean, because it was it was literally years in the planning. The whole music bit and the last week, I'd say, with the rehearsals and the actual gig was was actually relatively straightforward compared to a lot of the stuff that had come before it. But yeah. there there are a few standouts that I have of 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 that time. One of them is, do you remember when Ingve turned up for the sound check at Music Bank, and yeah. he was just so loud it was ridiculous and like i remember looking around the few select people you know that were there sort of waiting around or whatever in the rehearsal room and everyone's just like this Wait, yeah the most unbelievable volume i remember i remember having a slight issue with with ingve's tech yeah. uh because he wasn't the how do i put this politely he wasn't the quickest at doing things you know what i mean yeah. um yeah. But you know what, other than that, it was, I'm glad that we did it. I'm glad that we could put it together. And it was one of those nights where I don't think you'll ever see all those people, you know, getting Corey Taylor to come on with Phil Campbell from Motorhead to do a, a Thin Lizzy song. It was, that's what it was all about, man. You know, uh, just completely yeah. taking people out of their, their normal comfort zone. And um, it was brilliant, wasn't it? It was fantastic. And after talking of um, Ingve's tech, I've never seen a man more nervous and sweating as much as him. He was so, I mean, poor bloke. Ingo was just like throwing guitars at him. Yeah. He was like having to catch stuff. And, yeah. oh, and I, I even remember because I remember the poor guy during the, during the setup at Wembley on the day was just stood there sweating. And then Ingo's coming in, 
there's one point where Ingbe just throws the guitar obviously behind him and I'm obviously behind that. <laughs> and I didn't want to add any pressure, but I said to him, you catch that guitar because if you don't catch it, that's landed on me. <laughs> yeah, it's, no, no extra pressure required there, but that was, yeah. And the other, you know, the other thing I remember about the rehearsals, apart from the fact that with each of the guitar players that, was, that were coming in, they had their own tech and then yes. their manager was there or their, yeah. whoever was there. And at one point, I remember looking, it was in the, the big room at um, Music Bank, wasn't it? That's Up, right. Upstairs. And I remember looking around going, there's more people in here at this rehearsal than a lot of the gigs I've played. I there were so many people. Yeah, it was mental. Was. And Ingve came over and I had, and it was, as you will remember, the, the turnaround of, of the artist was really quick. Yeah. So, you know, we'd rehearsed for a couple of days or so, I think, and then they were coming in for 20 minutes each or something That's like right, that. Yeah. Very quick turnaround. And I had my um, in-ear monitors in and I was just, I can't remember what the songs were that um, they played, but there was one where a lot of the guitar lines were doubled on keyboards or there's like this trading solo thing. Um, So I was just sort of doing that. And he came over and I looked up and he had obviously been talking to me for like 30 seconds, but I had my in-ears and so I couldn't even, so I just looked up and he he was there and he sort of got his shirt open. He's got his cowboy boots on and he's kind of, not shouting, but talking loudly at me. Yes. And I took my ears out and he just went, so it's just like that, yeah? <laughs> and then he went, <laughs> and I was like, was that important or not? I don't know. I don't know what he just said. Missed all of it. <laughs> oh, God, I love him. Because, yeah, man, the rehearsal, like I say, he, he had it cranked to 11 and he was he was with, the, you know, the shirt undone. And he is yeah. just that guy is on 11 all the time. But everyone was great. No one kicked off a stink. Um Everyone was cool, man. Honestly, I can't think of a negative thing. They, everyone was great. Satch and 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 we did, you know, like the band, the house band. It was a lot of pressure, I think, on us to with, with so much stuff to play. It was a four-hour show. And you know what? We, I think we went about two minutes over curfew or something like that. It was something really you know, we yeah, we absolutely nailed it. One I, I looked through some pictures recently from that would just been offloaded from my phone about that time. I didn't have, I didn't have many pictures that I'd taken from the day, but the one picture I do have is, I don't know if you remember, we had a bit of, we had a bit of off stage time. So we went to the dressing room and I think my wife and daughter came back as well in the middle of the show. Um, and it's a picture of you in front of the TV because we put X Factor on in the dressing room. We're watching that, you know, while this gig, massive gig's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and there was us watching X Factor for about 10 minutes before we had to go back on. Yeah, how do you, you normally warm up for a massive rock gig? Well, a bit of X Factor. Bit of X Factor on a Saturday night, don't know about you. Off, you know. <laughs> great, man. Adam, this has been so much fun uh, and uh, great to chat. Thanks so much for your time, mate. No, it's been a pleasure. It's lovely to see you again, man. Likewise. Cheers. <laughs>